The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's go ahead and start, if we might. And uh, I'm going to uh, go ahead and open us up in prayer. Father, thank you for this afternoon, this time to be together with these brothers and sisters. Thank you for the um, topic of our, of our study tonight, uh, which is prayer and specifically promises of God concerning prayer. And Father, I ask uh, that you would strengthen us to understand your word. I pray that you'd send forth your Holy Spirit now. pray that you would uh, overcome our own weaknesses and sins and tendencies, O oh Lord, that you would shine light into dark areas that you would bring conviction. Father, I pray that you'd give energy to our prayer lives. Father, I pray that we would invest, as a result of this study, more time in prayer and that our hearts would be more fervent and our uh, faith strengthened so that we can trust you for and believe you for great things as a result of prayer. Father, I pray that these promises would resonate in our hearts. I pray that, that each of the brothers and sisters that are here tonight might hear something from the Word that hits them in a new and convicting and encouraging way, and that they can take these promises as their own and use them for your glory. In short, Lord, I just pray that you'd make us a praying people, that we would be uh, faithful in prayer, fervent in prayer, and that we would see you do great things in answer to prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so tonight our, our inquiry is on the issue of promises, the promises of God in prayer. Um, last time we looked at the commands of God and, you know, really that's enough. If God has commanded us to do something, we ought to just do it. Uh, and we have many commands um, to, uh, to pray. But, you know, the more I've gone on in my Christian life, I have a harder and harder time differentiating between the pr- commands of God and the promises of God, frankly. All of God's commands are good, aren't they? It says in Scripture, God's commands are not burdensome. So if God commands you to be holy because He is holy, is that a command or is it a promise? Well, you really start to meditate on it, it really is the same. Everything He commands, He's going to work in us by the power of the Spirit of God. And when we are done being saved, when salvation's finished, we will completely fulfill all of those things, the essence of them completely. And that's a beautiful thing. And so it is, there's really a fine line between the commands of God concerning prayer and the promises of God. And so we're going to see some of the same verses we saw last week. Um, You know, Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. All right, so that verse, would you put that under command or promise? Okay, ask, that's a command. And it will be given to you, that's a promise. Seek is a command, and you will find that's the promise. They're just totally woven together. Um, So the distinctions may seem a bit artificial to you, but if you end up looking at the same verses again a different way, that's fine with me. But there are some different verses that we're going to look at tonight. And our study is going to break into two basic sections tonight. Uh, Commands of God just concerning prayer itself. They're not attached to anything in particular. Um, but just that praying, a praying life, a praying individual, uh, brother or sister, a, a son or daughter of God that prays, uh, God is going to answer their prayers. They're just general prayers, uh, promises concerning prayer. That's the first half of our, of our study. And the second half is, is praying the promises of God. That we actually take general promises that uh, have to do with anything concerning the kingdom of God and that we would pray them back to God. 
So that's how our study will divide uh, tonight, promises and prayer. So let's look at the first category, and that is promises concerning prayer. And the foundational promise uh, that I want to look at here uh, it really isn't a, a promise made really to us or a command to us concerning prayer. We can piggyback on it. I don't think there's anything wrong with piggyback on it. I think it's, we ought to. But it really is an intertrinitarian conversation here in Psalm 2. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth uh, your possession. Now, who is speaking to whom here in Psalm 2? Ask of me. Let's start with the easy part. Who's the me? God the Father. Who is he speaking to? Definitely God the Son. Uh, how do we know that? How can you tell? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Yeah, nobody else is qualified, quite frankly. You know, I mean, this really kind of brings our minds over to um, uh, to Revelation chapter five, where's that, where there, there's that scroll sealed seven times, and some have interpreted it to be the title deed to the earth. That's fine. Uh, the right of ownership for the earth. And John wept and wept because there was no one found in heaven or earth or under the earth who was worthy to take the scroll and to break open its seals or even to look inside it. Nobody is worthy. None of the angels, archangels, none of the saints of God, the patriarchs, none of the apostles. John himself wasn't worthy. The angel who was with him wasn't worthy. No one was worthy. No, no created being was worthy to take that scroll and open its seals. But there is Jesus and he comes uh, boldly and takes it because he is worthy. And they celebrate the great worthiness, uh, the great worthiness of Christ. So this is an intertrinitarian conversation, a command given from father to son. Ask me for something. What is the father urging the son to ask him for? The nations. So Darcy, what does that mean? Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. What does that mean to you? Uh, do you think Jesus obeyed the uh, the imperative, ask of me, etc.? Do you think he's done this? I think he did before the foundation of the world. Father, I hereby ask, okay? And then I'll give them to you. And he's in the process, the Father's in the process of fulfilling the request. Uh, the Father has a wise plan, what we call a redemptive plan, a redemptive history, where the this this request is being fulfilled. The nations are being given to the Son to be his possession. And uh, this is really the advancing kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is advancing. People's hearts are being changed. They're being rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. They're becoming his possession. Susan. I think it refers to all people, all peoples. So, you know, we would say that Israel, um, Israel uh, is a nation. But when, when you look at the Old Testament and they use this language, the nations, the goyim, so to speak, they're generally the, the non-Jewish nations, etc. But we would have to say that uh, Israel is also God's possession or Jesus' possession. So... You know, we don't really have a problem with that. I think it does say in Isaiah's prophecy that Egypt would be God's possession as well. It uses that same kind of language. So all of it is God's. And so this is foundational because our salvation is based on this. I really believe my salvation is based on an inter-Trinitarian transaction between the Father and the Son in which I am redeemed because a promise is made from the Father to the Son. If you'll die for them, I will forgive them. I will accept them. They will be my uh, own uh, people. Uh, I'll see them in you, etc. And so the, the, the um, son has asked. Um, Jesus, and we're going to see later, uh, Jesus is the, is the actual perfect example of praying the promises of God. That the, the, the father has a plan and Jesus just asks for everything based on that plan and never asks amiss. Everything Jesus asks is according to that plan because he understands the plan better than anyone. 
perfectly, okay? Well, uh, secondly, for us as individuals, there's a foundational prayer, and that's a salvation prayer. You know, there are a number of these, but Psalm 50, verse 15 would be an example. Could somebody read this off our sheet here today? Psalm 50 and verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Yeah, it's an incredible, incredible statement there. Uh, Call upon me in the day of trouble. So what does that mean? Call upon me in the day of trouble. What's the day of trouble? Okay, that's the ultimate day of trouble. That's a trouble day. Okay, judgment day. Um, but I think for us, by faith, we see the judgment day coming, and so we can act in light of that. So call on me in light of the day of trouble, or just as you find yourself in difficulty or in trouble now. Uh, the ultimate trouble is to find yourself an enemy of God, I would think. To be aware that you are, in fact, an enemy of God. That God is angry with you. The wrath of God abides on you because you've not, you're not a Christian. You're lost. That's, that's a day of trouble, is it, isn't it? I mean, to know that God's hand is against you, that God, God's wrath remains on you. If you died in that, you'll experience that wrath for all eternity. That's a day of trouble. So what is God inviting here for those in the day of trouble? Call upon me in the day of trouble. All right? And what will he do? I will deliver you. I will rescue you. The greatest danger we face. There is no greater danger in in all the universe than this. The wrath of God. That God would be against us. The justice of God for our sins. There is no greater danger than that. Why do I say that? Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that can do nothing to you. I'll tell you the one to fear. Fear the one who after the death of the body has power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so that's the greatest fear there is. What would it profit someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul? And so the loss of the soul is the greatest danger that we face. What he's saying is, call on me and I'll deliver you from that danger. I'll rescue you from it. We know how. By the blood of Jesus, by the death of his own son, by the transfer there of our guilt to Jesus, his righteousness to us. By the gospel, we can be delivered. But we must call on him. We must call on him. And he will... Uh, deliver us. And what's the final part there? It's so beautiful. You will honor me. Okay, is that, was that a prophecy? Is that a command? You better honor me. I just look on it as however you want to look at it, it's going to happen. All right, because if he delivers you, you'll most certainly honor him. You'll give him the glory. In my family, we're having our family devotions going through 1 Corinthians, and we just finished chapter 1. And uh, at the very end, it says, Therefore, as it is written, let, written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what we're going to spend eternity boasting in, in the Lord. We really are. We're going to give him the full glory and, and praise for our salvation. Uh, and we're going to know it better then than we do now. Like the psalmist says, I will tell of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I don't have a full sense of how great is my own wickedness and how great is God's holiness. I don't have a real sense of that now. But when I see him, I will, I will know. And then I will really honor him. I will honor him for all eternity. I'll give him the credit for my salvation. So it's a beautiful thing. Spurgeon preached a sermon on this, unforgettable, talk, uh, called it Robinson Crusoe's text. It really, uh, da- uh, Daniel Defoe used this in, in Robinson Crusoe. And he was in trouble, remember, how he was shipwrecked and all that. And, and he actually quotes this scripture. And he, and he talks about how God and man take shares, Spurgeon did in his sermon, and how, how there's a responsibility from, for, the, for the human being. Call upon me. And then God uh, has a responsibility. I will deliver you. Um, and then you will uh, honor me. And so that's how it goes. He actually goes into more detail than that. It's beautiful. Or this one, perhaps a little more familiar. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
what does that have to do with prayer? We're talking about, about uh, promises and prayer. What, is, what does this verse have to do with prayer? I think so, Adrian. Okay, well, you guys are on the same wavelength. All right, absolutely. Yeah, we're calling on the name of the Lord. Is this the sinner's prayer? Is that what we mean here? You know, the one printed at the end of the four spiritual laws? Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross. You know, is that, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I think that there's a place for a sinner to pray a prayer saying, save me, Jesus. I think you can see that with a lot of Jesus' miracles. Like, as I preached recently, when, when Jesus is healing um, the blind men outside of uh, uh, Jericho, and they're calling out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. You remember how Jesus stands in front of them and says, what do you want me to do for you? Which I say is either a great example of Jesus' obtuseness, where everyone else seemed to know what they wanted, but Jesus just had no idea. What do you want? It's got nothing to do with Jesus' obtuseness. He knows exactly what they're calling for. But he makes them vocalize it. Tell me what you want. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, we want our sight. All right? And so he gives it to them. And I think that's just a picture of Jesus, the Savior, saying to the sinner, what do you want me to do for you? And I think it's the evangelist's job to make it very clear so that the person has been educated and is prepared to ask for what they want. And I don't coach them on what to say in the sinner's prayer. I'm not against sinner's prayer prayers i don't think it's necessary or required that it be a certain pattern or form and it's not necessarily required that i hear it and i do believe that any sinner's prayer that has ever been prayed genuinely is prayed by somebody who is already justified before they uttered a single syllable because what is it that justifies after all faith and faith doesn't have anything to do with moving muscles. Now, we know from, from the book of James, faith always results in moving muscles. It results in, in deeds. There are going to be some deeds. And maybe the first deed is uttering some childlike prayer, Jesus, save me. But if it's a genuine prayer, they're already trusting in their heart Jesus to save. And so they speak out and they say, Jesus, save me. And whatever words they use, however uh, basic is their theology, none of that matters. What matters is the attitude of the heart. And they speak and they say, call upon me. Yes, Susan, go ahead. Well, I think at that point, with, I suppose it's important not to use um, Christianese. What do you do, Christian? So do you say, uh, would you like to talk, what if you want to talk to the Lord? Or do you say... You know what I say? I've done this recently. I say, you know, we get to that point, and I, I feel we're at that point. They understand. They say, well, I, I, I'm really, I, I, want, I want this. I, I do. And so I think it's really time for them. You know, I've explained substitutionary atonement without maybe using the lingo, but I've explained the gospel, and I, I just think it's time. It's at that point. I basically say, what do you want? I really just bring it to that, that Jesus standing in front of blind Bartimaeus saying, what do you want? And so, in effect, I, as though God himself were making his appeal through me, as though Jesus himself is standing there, I'm saying in his place, what do you want me to do for you? And if they can't say anything like about sin or going to heaven or, you know, any of that, then they don't really haven't understood. But usually, if you've done a good job witnessing at that point, they'll know exactly what they want. They don't want to go to hell. They don't want to stand accountable for their wickedness and their sins. You've done the law work. You've shown them the penalty of the wages of sin is death. You've explained what death is. You've talked about how Jesus can free us from that, you know, and they're, and they're ready. And you just say, what do you want? <laughs> I want that. Put it in your own words. Tell them what you want. Jesus, save me from hell and bring me to heaven. Make me a Christian. 
whatever they say, they'll say it. If you're coaching them in the language and all that, it's it's really like, I don't know, like they say teaching to the test. You know, the teachers say like, question one is going to be this, this is what you're going to want. I don't, I don't do that. I, I want to teach the, the, the doctrine. I want to teach the gospel. And then they'll know what to do when the time comes. All right, so, but this is, is this not a promise? Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, what's the promise? Well, they're going to be saved. They're going to be saved. What does it then mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, it's prayer, but, you know, on the, in the, na- on the name of the Lord, they're calling on his name. What does that mean? In light of who he is. Yeah. That's right. The word name, I think, very much for us, you know, you talk about somebody making a name for themselves. It has to do with reputation. It has to do with history, personality, all of that. And all of you have spent years making a name for yourself. You have. Unwittingly or wittingly, either way, you have a reputation. You do. I don't know what it is. I'm not saying I know what your reputation I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you have a reputation. I do too. Um, and uh, God has a reputation. And his, his name is fame, is splendor and glory spreading all over the world. God makes much of his name and reputation. And he wants us to do the same so that people will call on that mighty name, just like Rahab did. We heard what, what God did. We heard what he did to the Egyptians, what he did at the Red Sea. And we are trembling in fear. And she has enough faith then to ask that she would be saved. She wants to be saved, she and her family. And so that making much of the name of God is part of what he does to get people to be saved. Because, you know, and this is an old, this is an ancient, ancient expression. Look back in Genesis chapter 4. It says, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. That's old, back in Genesis chapter 4. I would say it predates that. Anybody, Abel, called on the name of the Lord when he offered up his sacrifices. He's calling on the name of the Lord. But uh, that's what it is. All right, these are just actually foundational, foundational promises with prayer. Inter-Trinitarian, Father to Son, ask of me, I'll give you the nations. And then here, he says, to the nations, if you call on me, I will save you. Those are the two basic things. Well, everything comes from that after that, okay? So I'm gonna, I just kind of clustered the, the, the next promises uh, under what I call a family privilege, okay? And what do I mean by that? Well, I think we all recognize, if you've ever taken your children to a crowded playground, uh, you understand that you do not have an equal responsibility to every child playing out there in the playground. You have a special responsibility to your children, all right? And so, you, you know, most parents, I think, if not all parents, know the difference between the cry of their own children and that of others. And, you know, other people's children, you know, you may show a Christian compassion for them, want to help them, you probably will. But you know that you have a special responsibility then to your own children, and you recognize their, their cries. Jesus and the scriptures more generally uh, present prayer very much in a, in a uh, father-child kind of relationship. And we can see that very plainly uh, in a lot of ways. Well, let's start with this basic idea. Non-Christians are not God's children. They're not. Not yet. They can become children of God, but they're not God's children. Okay? And I'm not going to get into, does God answer the prayer of non-Christians or is he obligated? We can talk about all of that, and there are many verses. I just want to go that direction. I just want to say they're starting in a position where God, uh, because of their wickedness and their sins, is under no obligation to hear them. Psalm 34, verse uh, 14 and 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. All right, so the first half says, you know, his ears are attentive to their cry. Uh, in, you know, just in, in light of our study tonight, we're, we're saying is he listens to their prayers, right? Contrasted, though, is the face of the Lord is against those who do evil 
to cut them off from the earth. So you could look at, let's say, a non-Christian, somebody who has been a blasphemer and a violent, vile person, and they're in some kind of a shipwreck situation or whatever, you know, they might call on God in some general way at that particular moment to be saved. And you say, well, now wait a minute, it said everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now I'm just telling you, they're just, they're calling on Castor and Pollux, they're calling on Mars, they're calling on God, the God of whatever. Who knows? I'm just saying, it says there that God's face is against those who do evil. Now, it could be that there are some genuine foxhole conversions. They could be in the middle of it, and that's when they get saved. Hopefully, there was an evangelist on board so that they heard the gospel, and at that last moment, they can be saved. But what does this verse say? What does it mean, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut them off from the, from the earth? Face of the Lord is against them. Flynn, what does that mean? You could imagine someone making an appeal down on their knees before some you know, Near Eastern potentate and they're crying out for their lives, crying to be spared, and he turns his face away from them, doesn't say a word. What do you think is going to happen at that moment? Well, at that moment, the henchmen, the soldiers, whatever, come in and it's over. In effect, what he's saying is, I do not hear you. I'm not, I'm not going to be gracious to you. Okay? Uh, Proverbs 1, 28 through 31. Uh, this is wisdom personified, but we could see somewhat God saying this. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but I will, they will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. Now, I think we can definitely see, and you know, it's just a really pretty grim and sobering meditation to think if there would be any that would be crying out to the Lord on Judgment Day, having heard the sentence uttered against them. Judgment Day has come. There's Jesus on his great white throne. He's separated the sheep from the goats and he's dealing with the, with the goats and he's throwing them into hell. Uh, Depart from me, you who are cursed in the eternal fire prepared for the devil. And do you think any of them are going to be crying out to him, begging for mercy, pleading, something like that? I don't know. Scripture doesn't say, but I, I mean, it wouldn't shock me that they would. You want to see these things really getting fulfilled at that moment? He has no interest. You did not listen to me. You turned your back on me. I sent this, wit this, this witness or this evangelist. I did this and this and this, and you would not listen to me. Therefore, I will not listen to you right now. Yes, Susan, go ahead. A friend of mine was in an earthquake in Seattle, and she was in Boeing Corporation, um, which may be there now. I don't know. Maybe they're offshore. But anyway, they were in Boeing at the time, and she said that when there was an earthquake, everybody was screaming out to various deities for and it to the Virgin Mary and just to all sorts of things. So I would imagine people are going to be screaming out for mercy. They will. And, you know, remember how Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, and there's, there's wailing and there's screaming. And uh, I think that people are still articulate. They're able to form words and all that. Who knows um, what that will be like. Uh, but at any rate, the point is that lost people, um, they can cry out, uh, but God's under no obligation to hear. Isaiah 59, or verse 1 and 2 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And if you keep reading Isaiah 59, he mentions things like murder and other things like that. These are Jews who are unregenerate. Uh, they are not living in any way, shape, or form a godly life. And so he's saying, I, I don't have a hearing problem. That's not it. And it's not like I'm weaker than I used to be. I'm, I'm, I'm not in my prime. 
My arm is every bit as strong now as it was when I led you through the Red Sea. But I'm choosing not to save you. That's what he's saying. Okay? And then Micah 3, 4, Then they will cry out to the Lord, and he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. Now, these verses are, are sobering. But I think it's good for you as a Christian to look at them and realize that that's what you deserved concerning your own prayer life. Prayer is an immense privilege. And the more you meditate on verses like this, I deserve to have God say these kinds of things to me. I don't deserve to have him answer my prayers. I don't deserve that. I deserve to have him say, my face is against you because of all the wickedness you've done. But because of the greatness of the work of Christ, because of his imputed righteousness to our account, because God sees us in Christ, he's going to say the exact opposite to us in a few moments. He's going to command us and beckon to us and beg us and plead, beg, beg us and plead to us to pray. The exact opposite from what we just heard. But you ought to take these verses and say, you know, as the old saying goes, there but for the grace of God go I. I deserve to have God say those kind of things to me. Very, very powerful. All right, well, this is a family matter. What do I mean? Well, salvation actually then makes you an adopted child of God. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. We are children of God. Beloved, now we are children of God, 1 John 3. So we are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. That means that he is our father and we are his sons and daughters. And it's a beautiful thing to look at. So what that means is that God will answer your prayers like a father does his child. And frankly, in effect, he's going to say, I'm better at it than you are. <laughs> I mean... Let's be very, very honest. Uh, let's look at what Jesus says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So this is set in family language. All right, he's speaking to the children of God. How much more will your Father in heaven give things to you? You see what I'm saying? These are people that God has a covenant relationship with. And what is he saying? He's comparing your parenting to his, in effect, right? So how do we look, you know? If you then, though you are evil, <laughs> you know this basic thing to give good, th good gifts to your children. How much more am I a better father than you ever will be? That's what he's saying. I, I am just so much better at it than you are. I'm much more committed to my children than you are. I love them more than you do. Don't be insulted. This is God after all. Um, but, you know, that's the whole thing. God is committed to us as our Heavenly Father. He is committed to answer our prayers. And so he's saying, look, you, you parents, and, and clearly he's, he's assuming it in normalcy here, uh, Christians even, um, we can say that. There are some perverted and wicked parents who would do even worse than this and we hear about them sometimes in the news and it breaks my heart it's much harder for me to hear now that I have my own children and I think how could anyone do something like that to a child it, it just troubles me to their own children you know abuse stories and other things like that but ordinarily all around the world parents want to do good things for their children they want to give them good gifts they want to make them happy and uh, you know if your son comes and asks for a fish something to eat you're not going to give him a stone or a scorpion or a snake or something like that you're going to want to give him something good and so what is Jesus doing here by using this kind of language what is he doing what's his goal in this analogy 
Compa comparison. Okay, what's he trying to do? So he's reasoning with us. Whenever you see Jesus use the language, how much more, that's a reasoning process. How much more? How much more? So what he's saying is, this is true, how much more is that? It's a logical process. He is trying through logic, through reason, to persuade us to give up our prayerlessness. In effect, he's saying your prayerlessness is irrational. It's, it's illogical to be prayerless when you have such a great God. It, it makes no sense for you to ask so little of God. You should be asking for a lot of things from God. So that's what he's getting at here. And uh, Luke does the same thing in Luke 11. Uh, everyone who asks or sees, he who seeks finds, him who knocks the door will be open. He gives them about the same language, slightly different words. How much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, Luke says. Same idea, all right? So it, within the family context here, we have uh, a father promising things as a family privilege to give us whatever we ask. And notice the universal blessings attached to asking. Everyone who asks and everything that is requested. It, that kind of language is used regularly in the New Testament. Everyone who asks gets it, right? And they get everything they ask for. I mean, you have to admit that this is really lavish language, but this is the language Jesus gives us. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. See that language? Everyone. Everyone who asks. He's really stressing it. And everything that's requested is, is going to be given. John 14. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring, bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. He's, he's using repetition. He's using this kind of lavish language. Whatever or everything. So everyone who asks get everything they ask for. You're like, well, now, wait a minute. That's not been my experience, actually. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. But I just want you to just stand amazed at the language itself. It's biblical language. It really is. He is using this kind of extreme language uh, because God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. So there's not a person in this room who is over-asking right now. None of us are over-asking. You may be asking for the wrong things. You probably are, and I'm not meaning that insulting. I mean, all of us have trouble really seeing what God is doing, and we don't ask properly. But at the same time, you are not in any way, shape, or form overshooting the mark or over-asking. You know, it wouldn't be too much trouble, Lord, you know, that kind of thing. He has immeasurably more power than you can imagine, and he has more love and more graciousness toward you. He has far more resources, and we're really insulting him by under-asking. Remember that story where a prophet Elisha was there with one of the kings and he said, take the arrows and strike it down. Remember how? And, and he struck it three times and he got the prophet got angry. You should have struck five, six, seven times because then the Lord would have completely destroyed the Arameans. But as it will, you only have partial victory over them. So that's us. We're all like that. We're kind of, you know, little, some little requests, some little things we're asking God. And he is, in effect, I, I, what, I, what I read from this, he is urging us Ask for more than you're asking for. You're not asking for enough. All right? So everyone who asks and everything that's requested. All right, there are conditional promises as well concerning prayer. There are certain ifs or conditions that we have to meet in prayer. For example, there is a need for personal holiness and obedience. Our prayer, our success, if we can use that language, our success or fruitfulness in prayer is proportional to our personal holiness and obedience to the laws of God. In other words, the more you obey God's laws and the more holy you are and the more you're conformed to Christ and all that, the better you're going to pray and the more answers you're going to get. That's just kind of how that works. And we, we don't have to work too hard to prove this. Psalm 91 says, Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. 
He will call upon me and I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. But again, the grounds or the reasons why God does all these lavish things is because he loves me, because he acknowledges my name. That's what he's saying here. New Testament makes this even plainer. John 15 and verse 7, we looked at this last time. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. So there's a condition there. You know, you have to abide or dwell or remain or live in Jesus and his words have to do that in you. Then you can ask for whatever you wish and it will be given. Or again, uh, 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. Whoever would love life and see good, de- good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the, face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's just a quote uh, from the psalm we heard earlier. But First Peter's, First Peter is uh, using that. And I love the uh, condition. Is this you? Would you like to love life and see good days? <laughs> Not me. That's for other people. I'd like to hate life and have bad days. All right. I really would. That's my goal is to hate life and have lots of bad days. Well, obviously, that's something all normal, healthy people could embrace. Say, I would love to love life and I want to see good days. Well, then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So he's giving you some basic moral commands here about how you are to live. You know, these are just some some quick commands that just get at an upright Christ-like life. Live like Jesus. Attend to how you're living. Be careful how you're, how you're speaking, what's going on in your life. And if so, then God will attend to your prayers. So there's a link there between personal holiness and success in prayer. Or again, 1 John 3, 21 and 22 says this, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Well, that says it very plainly, doesn't it? In other words, the reason we get what we ask is that we're obeying his commands and doing what pleases him. Jesus said for his part, I always do what pleases him. I mean, imagine that kind of a statement. What an incredible statement to make. I always do what pleases him. Therefore, I always get everything I ask for. One of the most uh, fruitful meditations for me in the area of prayer is to understand that Jesus always gets 100% of what he asks for uh, from his father. That's just such a good thing to consider. He never asks amiss. Nothing he asks for is ever refused. Um, He's at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. And you are completely and thoroughly covered in perfect prayer right now. Isn't that wonderful to know that? Does that mean we shouldn't solicit prayer requests when we're going on mission trips or if you're having some issues or just in general in your life? No, of course you should. That's part of God's salvation plan for the church, that we be praying for each other. But just know this, it's not needed. It's not needed. Uh, You say, what do you mean it's not needed? I'm just telling you, you're prayed for. (laughs) Jesus is at the right hand of God, it says, and is always living to intercede for us. Is there anything amiss or lacking in Jesus' intercession that you're going to come up and kind of shore that up a bit? You're going to kind of bolster Jesus' prayer life. He's got about 60% of it covered, but he's kind of raising the rest, all right, the other 40%. And you guys can pitch in where, you know, like that thermometer, you know, the the local hospital's got, you know, 80% of the funds raised and they're, they're almost there. Jesus is trying to get your full prayer coverage. And if you would just pitch in, you know, we could get the whole thing done. Dear friends, that is not at all the case. You are thoroughly and completely prayed for. But we still ought to be praying far more for each other than we are. We ought to be interceding for each other and praying for each other far better. Imitating Jesus in that regard. Okay, so we need a holy life. We need to follow 
uh, the Lord in holiness. Secondly, we need faith. We need to believe God. We need to pray believing. Very, very plainly. All right? Mark 11. This is after the cursing of the fig tree in Mark's account. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Boy, if that's not a name and claim it passage, if you ever heard it, right? The faith people just are all over that. Well, if you want to hear my answers to all that, then hear the sermon I preached on the cursing of the fig tree just recently. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus is clearly stressing the need for faith and fighting against doubt. So it's very important to believe and not doubt when you ask. James openly says that. When you're asking for wisdom, you need to believe and not doubt. When he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The sad fact of the matter is, is all of us are double-minded men. We really are honestly double-minded men. Read about it in Romans chapter 7 and Galatians chapter 5. We are double-minded. The spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. They're at war with each other so that we do not uh, do what we want. So we are double-minded, but we ought to be working against it. We ought to say, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I don't want to be quavering and wavering in my prayer life. I want to trust you for more. I want to develop my prayer life more. And so I'm against doubt. I'm against the wavering. I want to be sure that what I'm praying for really is biblical. I want to sure, be sure that it's really uh, according to God's will. And then I just want to keep praying for it until it happens. Those kind of things. But, you know, doubt is a, is a bad problem. And if you look at in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels especially, Jesus is not very gentle when his apostles don't believe him. You know, when they don't trust him. You know, like when Jesus was asleep in the boat and these uh, professional fishermen, in their professional opinion, thought they were going to drown, uh, which I think you ought to listen to when a professional fisherman thinks he's about to drown. He probably is. But for all of that, Jesus gets up and... Uh, rebukes the wind and the wave, and then he turns and rebukes these professional fishermen. You know, why did you doubt, you of little faith? This was, this was a bad moment there. They should not have doubted. Jesus wasn't doubting. He was asleep in the boat, okay? And I've told you before why. Any of you heard me teach on this before? You know very well why Jesus was asleep in the boat. He was asleep in the boat because he knew for a fact that God had not sent his only begotten son into the world to die in a tragic boating accident, Okay? <laughs> It just wasn't going to happen. No need to worry. He's asleep in the boat. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be pierced. He's going to bleed and die. He is not going to die with a lung full of water. That just isn't going to happen. And so he can sleep in the back of the boat. Well, you say, yeah, that's him. But what about them? Well, they had been chosen and picked by Jesus. They were part of the thing. They're not going to die in a boating accident either. Not at that point anyway. And so the fact of the matter is they should have belief and not doubt and, and, and not, you know, but God really pushed it. You know, that boat was filling with water. And there was lots and lots of trouble going on there. Peter really was sinking, and Jesus really did have to reach down and rescue him. But he still got the rebuke, didn't he? Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? So whatever it is that's causing you to doubt, you need to go at it. Go at it with Scripture. Go at it with, uh, you know, with, with uh, prayer and say, Lord, I, you know, I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. All right? Thirdly, we need to persevere or persistent. We need to be persistent. Okay? So some of the conditional promises here are based on persistence. In fact, you could translate it this way. Keep on asking, it will be given to you. 
Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. That would be a faithful translation from the Greek. Thomas Manton put it this way. If we don't receive by asking, then let us seek. If we don't receive by seeking, then let us knock. I love that. So in other words, keep trying different approaches, but keep, keep going for it. Keep going for it. Or Jesus told this parable, Luke 18. He told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming uh, to him with the, with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, that's my favorite part of the whole parable, even though I don't fear God or care about men, he said to himself, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, faith for what? What I would say is faith to keep praying and not give up. We are all tempted to give up in our prayer lives, aren't we? Haven't you been tempted? Haven't you actually, in some cases, given up? Haven't you stopped praying for things? I know I have. And so for me, what I want to do is, is go back to Luke 18 and say, you know, why did Jesus tell this parable? He is really setting it up here. There's this wicked, wicked man, this evil judge, and it's really stressed multiple times in the parable how bad this guy is. He even acknowledges it out loud himself, even though I'm a really rotten guy. All right? You know, it's very stressed. You have to be kind of a blockhead not to see what Jesus is doing. This is clearly a how much more argument. If this this evil, wicked man gives this persistent widow what she asked for, then how much more will your loving father give you what you're asking for? But you need to keep on praying and not give up. We talked about this last week, but it's just in the nature of the relationship between us as a servant and God as a king. He will not have it reversed. He's not going to be your servant and you the king. So he's going to put you off in some sense and make you wait. And so there are many psalms. Why, O oh Lord, do you make me cry out? Why, why the delay? Why won't you act? There's all of this. And the psalms are helping us to, in effect, say, okay, this is normal between me and God. It's normal for me to ask, and it seems God isn't answering. That's a normal thing. Luke 18 tells me what to do in that case. What should I do? So what should you do? Keep on praying and not give up. That's what he's saying. Keep on going. And he uses the word quickly. Of course, he uses it a little differently than you and I do, doesn't he? Behold, I am coming soon, says the Lord. He's coming quickly, says Revelation, written 2,000 years ago. Okay? With the Lord, a day is like a 1,000 years, a 1,000 years like a day. It really is going to seem quickly when you're on the other side. You really are. All right? You know, at the time, it's very tough. If you are a house church pastor in East, East Asia and you're arrested and they're beaten up on you day after day and you're thinking about this and you're crying out for justice against your persecutor and it isn't coming and they come in the next morning and beat you up again, you're like, okay, very strongly tempted to give up praying. Okay? But Jesus says, I will see that you get justice and quickly. Okay, so he says in Revelation, behold, I am about to put you in prison and you'll be tested for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. That's what he's saying. And I'll give you the crown of life. 10 days means it's just a short time, just a little while. Let me keep going if I might. All right. So we need to persevere. We need to keep on praying and not give up. Fourthly, we need to ask according to God's name and according to God's will. I really don't make much of a distinction between the two. 
uh, God's will is an extension of his name. Um, the, the two are very closely related, so I just put them in one category. When you're praying according to the name of Jesus or praying by his name, you're praying for things that he has revealed are according to his will, according to his person, his character, all of that. So this is the big filter then, isn't it? And as you look at this, it's like this is why you don't get everything you ask for. This is why God sometimes says no to you. You may pray uh, with a good motive, what seems right to you, and it seems like a good thing, and wouldn't it be good if this such and such thing happened and it doesn't happen? All right, just understand that God, God knows that you prayed with a good spirit, with a good motive. He, you know, everything done by faith for his glory, he accepts it. You'll never lose your reward. But he said no to you. And the reason is that you don't understand the big picture the way he does, that, that many of the things that you ask for really just would not, they wouldn't be best. If they had been best, he would have done them. He's choosing what's best. And uh, it's just more complicated than we can possibly imagine. The whole system is. But that we need to pray according to his will or um, based on, on, his, you know, on his name is very clear. We've already actually read some of these verses. We'll read them again. John 14, 13 and 14, he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. Okay, remember, he, he says... He gives this to everyone and whatever you ask. Yes, but we all know that means whatever we ask in his name. Now, so does that mean we just say, in Jesus' name, amen? Is that what that means? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, in Jesus' name, amen. But just as long as you're kind of thinking that the whole time you're praying, that's the point. The point isn't just that you tack it on at the end. The point is that you're thinking, in Jesus' name, amen, the whole time. Am I praying this in Jesus' name? Am I praying that? So am I praying that Jesus' reputation might be enhanced, that Jesus' name might be seen great among the nations, that kind of thing? You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Another way to understand this in my name is basically you have no standing apart from me, just so you know that. So it's kind of like you're drawn on your father's bank account or on, on, you know, it's his credit card or whatever. You really don't. You have no right to be besieging the throne of grace apart from Jesus' name anyway. I mean, it's, he is your new and living way into the presence of God. You don't have any other way to get into Jesus or into God's presence apart from Jesus. You know that, don't you? So you're standing there in Jesus' name. You're standing there actually in Jesus. And it's in his name you ask for things. That's a different way to understand it. But I tend to understand it in terms of his redemptive plan. If you ask for things based on what he's like, based on his plan and his river, he will do it. He will do it. That's what he's saying. Okay? And I also think this is a matter of revelation. Okay, John 14, 21 is so big for me in this. Uh, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and disclose or manifest myself to him. Huge word for me. What that means is that he is in some sense hidden, right? And he is kind of paying himself out to you a little at a time. He's showing more of himself to you, more of his plan, more of his character and his heart, opening himself up to you a little bit at a time. And it's based on your obedience to his commands. If you have his commands and you obey them, he's going to show more of himself to you. And uh, let's just take the command, let's say, to evangelize. Let's say you're very scared to evangelize. It's hard for you to do that. But you step out in faith and you start getting involved more and more in the evangelistic lifestyle. Are you not going to discover more of God's plan that way than if you, in fear, pull back and don't do that? You will learn more about God. You just will. He will show more and more of himself to you. Prime example of this, I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories from church history is George Mueller, who stepped out in faith at so many different levels and trusted God for so many different things, feeding and caring for over 10,000 orphans in his life, seeing just 50,000 and more specific answers to prayer, just doing so many great things. 
And uh, this, this story is just a remarkable example of what I'm talking about here. He was on a, a, a liner going across from uh, England to the United States. He was going to meet with the president. Uh, he had other meetings, and they got it. This is in the, I think, uh, 1870s, and he got lo- they got locked up in this thick uh, fog bank, okay, in the North Atlantic, kind of like where later the Titanic would get into difficulty. So all systems shut down, stop. And so uh, he goes to the captain. And he said, Captain, I want you to know that I must be at my meeting in Quebec on Tuesday. And he said, That's quite impossible. He said, Haven't you, Have you seen the, the fog? He said, I have never missed a meeting in all these years. And I'm not going to miss this one. And if God will not use your ship to get me there, he will find some other way. But I'm going to be at that meeting. Well, this guy's like, the captain's looking at him like he's nuts. You're out of your mind. They haven't invented the helicopter yet or the seaplane, okay? Uh, how in the world are you going to get there other than by this ship? Fog. And, you know, and he says, this fog is the thickest that I've ever seen. He says, my eye is not on the fog, but on the God who holds in his hand my life and all my ways. Come, let us pray. So they go down to the chart room, the captain and George Mueller. I love this. I would love to have been there. What a great moment in church history. And so Mueller prays a very simple prayer. I don't know what it was. We don't have the words, but basically something like, God, please move the fog so we can get underway again. Something like that. It's not in the words. It's in the relationship and in the prayer. He makes his request known to God. Then the captain begins to pray. And Mueller puts his hand on his shoulder and says, stop. Stop. First of all, you don't believe that he will. And second of all, I believe he already has, and so there's no need to pray. Go and look, and you will see that the fog has moved. Now, there's no windows down in that chart room. They're down below. How does he know? Because God told him. And the thing I'm, what I get out of that story is, when you're one of his choice children who has stepped out in faith year after year to do great things for the kingdom, he's going to show you more, and you're going to pray better. You're going to pray for more things according to his will, including even weird things like God moved the fog. And so it was God that moved the fog, not George Mueller. It wasn't George Mueller's faith that moved the fog. It wasn't his prayer that moved the fog. It was God that moved it. What God is doing is he's communicating his will to his servant. He didn't even have to go out and look. He said, the fog's gone. Just you, you go look if you want to. I'm going down and get a good night's sleep. And let me know when we get to Quebec. I'm ready to go for my meeting. So my feeling is, wouldn't you? I would love to get to that level of intimacy with the Father where he's showing me the kind of stuff he wants to do. And then I will not pray amiss. I won't be praying off. I'll be praying in the center of his will. That's what I would urge. So what we have to do is pray according to his will. Again, first, um, first John 15, uh, sorry, first John 5, 14, 15 says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Again, that high level of confidence, whatever kind of language, anything we ask. But again, it's filtered by his will. And you want it to be filtered by that phrase, don't you? I mean, do you want anything out of his will? Oh, God, give me something that's not in your will. You know, I don't want anything that's not in his will. I at least am mature enough as a Christian to know that. God, please don't give me anything that's not in your will. But what I want to be is, is be like George Mueller where he's telling me what's in his will. I don't mean just generally, but I mean in specific detail concerning ministries or people or other things. And so I'm praying more uh, according to his, his will. All right, fifthly, we need boldness, the need for boldness, for confidence, all right? Luke 11, 5 through 8, uh, then he said to them, suppose one of you ha- has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread at midnight, okay? This is actually much more of a stark parable now in American culture than it would have been about 50 years ago. 50 years ago, this would have been just bad manners, but we work with it. Now it's shocking. We don't know our neighbors very well. You know, the advent of electronic entertainment and, uh, you know, microwave dinners and all that. When they come home on Friday, the drawbridge goes up. You don't see them again unless they're mowing the lawn, all right? 
if they could get an automatic drone to mow the lawn, they would never have to come out at all, all right? It is really hard to know your neighbors these days. So go to your neighbor now at midnight and ask for three loaves of bread. What's going to happen? You might get shot, all right? But I don't know. Uh, at any rate, this is a very poignant parable for us. Uh, you go and, and he says, friend, loan me three lo loaves of bread uh, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. The one inside answers, don't bother me. <laughs> The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him bread because he is his friend. Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So in other words, if... All right, let's suppose he says that, but the man is determined, okay? He's determined. He's not going... I mean, he's going to set the bread in front of the friend. That bread's really important. I've heard we can last like 40 days without eating, all right? You know, or something like that. So I don't know why it was so important at midnight to set this bread in front of the friend. But at any rate, we'll just go with it. Is that okay? We'll just kind of go with it in terms of the parable. He is determined to set the bread before his friend at midnight. He's not going anywhere. He's banging on that door and banging and banging and banging. Now it's 1230 or 1240. He's not going anywhere, hon. He's still here. <laughs> Give him what he's asking for so we can all get a good night's sleep, all right? So Jesus is highlighting persistence and boldness. He's asking you, be bold. You cannot out-ask my potency or my resources. You just can't. You're all under-asking. You're all way on the low side. Be bolder. Ask for great things. That's what he's saying. Isn't that what this parable is about? And again, it's a how much more argument. The father never sleeps. And he's got immediately what you ask for. He's not going to be annoyed. He's, I mean, he's, he's ready. He's, how much more then will the father be better than this friend? That's what he's getting at. And again, this, Hebrews 4, uh, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, admittedly, there's no clear promise here, but isn't it implied that if we uh, approach the throne of grace with confidence, we will receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need? One thing I've noticed, that there is no such time that is not a time of need. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's like, God, I've been, uh, you know, I've, it's been really kind of a needy time up to now. I'm, I'm good now. I'll be fine for the rest of the day. I don't need you. All right. There is no such time that isn't time. That's why it says in another place, pray without ceasing. It's always a time of need. We're in great danger here. I speak most soberly. We are in great danger. This is the devil's world in one sense. He is the God of this age. He's on the loose like a roaring lion. And there are brothers and sisters that are being tempted and there are lost people that need to be converted and there's your own heart to, to look after. And so we need to be bold. We need to approach the throne of grace with boldness, is what he's saying there, with confidence. And you say, well, why do I really need boldness or confidence to approach the throne of grace? Well, again, go to Revelation 5 with the, with the scroll in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. Would you have the boldness to go up and take that scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne? No, you wouldn't. It wouldn't be your place. Okay? But if you recognize who you are as a descendant of Adam, and how much sin there is in your life and how wicked you've been and how disobedient to the laws of God, and I say the same to me too, I think it would be good for us to have a sense, a greater sense of how much boldness it takes to approach the throne of grace. It actually takes great boldness. And you say, well, aren't I in that way denigrating the work of Christ? No, I'm not. I'm actually magnifying it because we're still welcome for all of that. So we actually should magnify 
greatly the boldness needed in the work of Christ that makes us welcome at the throne of grace. And then sixth, the need for fruitfulness for increased power in prayer. In other words, the more fruitful you are in prayer, the more fruitful you'll be in prayer. That's kind of how that works. But look what it says, John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask for in my name. <laughs> it's kind of an odd ordering there. Well, we already knew that the original fruit came as an answer to prayer, but now what he's saying here is if you're fruitful, you'll be even more fruitful. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So the more fruitful you are, the more fruitful you're going to be. There's a kind of a momentum sense here. So those are six little conditions that are set for us. Just read them through. These are conditions for a healthy prayer life, but they're all based on, on promises. There are specific, specific cases in prayer. Prayer for national revival. Have you ever heard, heard this one? Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So here's a bunch of conditions that are, that are uh, laid out for the people of God. And uh, uh, if they will see, pray and seek my face, then comes the promise. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, there's lots of discussion as to whether we as Americans can take Second Chronicles 7.14 and use that for the United States of America when it was given in Chronicles, clearly for Israel, um, et cetera. Well, I think there's some cogent arguments. John Piper did a good article on can we use Second Chronicles 7.14. Look it up. But at any rate, this is an example clearly of a conditional promise here in a special case. Here's a, here's a, a nation that's in deep trouble. Uh, they are in sin. Uh, they're in, in, uh, facing judgment. And they need, they need to be healed and forgiven. And so if they will meet these conditions, then God will hear from heaven and, and um, heal their land. Secondly, prayer by the poor against injustice. This is a prayer in the Old Testament. These are specific cases, but I think it's good to remember. Exodus 22, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak <clears throat> is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? <clears throat> Sorry. When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In other words, the cry of the poor and needy in the world, because of injustice or difficulties they're facing, God hears it. That's what he's saying. I am a God who hears that kind of thing. So it's a warning to people to not be the rich oppressor, certainly. But it's also, uh, it shows how God is close to the poor and needy, those that are going through uh, great trials and difficulties. So we should keep that in mind. A prayer for healing. We did this last, last time, and I'm not going to go into details on it. If you're sick, call the elders and they'll pray for you. Prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. We, we're not going to get to praying the promises of God. We'll do that next week. But Elijah and his whole behavior, he is probably one of the best examples in the Old Testament of praying the promises of God. It's really quite remarkable. And uh, we'll look uh, at 2 Kings 18 next time when God says, Go and show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. All right, very, very interesting, because you know what happens. What happens is uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and that's got nothing to do with rain. Actually, with fire coming down, we're hoping for water, um, but fire came down. Well, by the end of the day, there's a rainstorm. Very, very interesting. We'll talk about that next time, but that's uh, a man being faithful and praying the promises of God. Prayer for wisdom. If you lack wisdom, you should ask God. And then uh, we'll close with this one, and then we'll go to the other section next time. Uh, prayer in the case of church discipline. Okay? Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him uh, his fault just between the two of you. If you listen, you'll win your brother over. If you will not listen, then take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he listens to them, if he will not listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he will not listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So that's what he says here. And then he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound on, on, uh, in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's authority. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. 
For two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now, many people take these verses out of context and um, uh, say it's talking about prayer. Well, you can already see that prayer doesn't need much help. Have you noticed that? You really don't need Matthew 18, 20. You've got so many other verses that will help you with prayer. Universal verses, comprehensive promises. You don't really need any much more. So what is good is let's get a new angle on prayer here from Matthew 18 and keep it in its context, okay? What is the new angle? Well, it's a brother in sin. That's what it is. It's somebody who's caught in sin. Is that a matter for prayer? You better believe it is. I mean, that is the issue that we're dealing with in churches. People drifting away. There's, you know, issues with, of sin. And what he's urging, Jesus is urging here, is you're not just going to tell it to the church and all that. You're going to pray for him. Get together and pray for this individual that they would be reclaimed, that they would be rescued. James 5 talks about the same thing. And so the idea is that we're going to gather together and we're going to pray for this individual and we're going to pray that God would bring them back from their drifting and their wandering away from God. And if you pray, two of you together, pray for anything you ask in my name, I'll do it. So um, God has answered those prayers before, hasn't he? Where, where wandering, drifting sinners have been reclaimed and brought back. So what he's saying is do this, do the church discipline stuff and all that, but do the prayer and do it all along. Let's say, you know, you're already at stage two and you're going to bring one or two others along. Do this first, I would urge, and you will, I know. But pray, pray for that person that this would be effective. We don't have to go tell the church. We can just uh, confront them now. So in, in tonight's study, we looked at various promises connected with prayer. Well, last week, we looked at commands. Um, next week, I'll pick right up here uh, where we're at and talk about praying the promises of God. But uh, all of this says to me is, is pray more. Spend more time in prayer. Pray better. Pray, pray with more wisdom according to the Word of God. Let's search out from Scripture and find out what we should be praying for. And, and let's pray with more boldness and let's pray with more persistence and not give up. Let's pray more specifically. Let's expect God to answer our prayers. Let's pray in faith and say this actually matters. God's going to answer this prayer. Well, let's do that. I, I want to do that for myself. I've, I feel like God's been working a lot on my prayer life the last six months and I'm just grateful to teach this because I want to put these things into practice. And it could be that tonight God has spoken to you as well and he says he wants more out of you, more out of you in your prayer life. Give more time to it. Trust me for more things. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for tonight's study, for the power of the Word of God. Thank you for these brothers and sisters that are here tonight to listen to the Scriptures. And Father, just help us to obey what you've told us. Help us to be persistent, to be faithful, to pray for things according to your will and in the power of your name and for your glory. And to just be amazed at all the things you do in answer to prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.